Military training is supposed to train service members, not kill them. But the Army and Marine Corps have sustained thousands of non-combat vehicle accidents. In one 10-year period, 123 service members were killed. A review by the Government Accountability Office finds that the services don't always employ their own preventive practices. Here with more, the GAO's Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues, Carrie Russell. Carrie, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. And this issue of vehicles that overturn or crash or otherwise end up in injury or death to service members, this has been a fairly persistent issue, hasn't it? It has. Uh, we looked at 10 years worth of data and we found a number of accidents across that period. It varies, obviously, from year to year, but it's a significant problem for sure. Because the photograph even going with the report summary shows, I guess that's a, I don't know what it is, a MRAP or something, a very, very heavy, large truck-like thing completely on its lid. And that takes some doing to tip a thing over like that. Yeah, it's a significant concern. Obviously, you know, there are a lot of vehicles of that size that can and do uh, roll over. And, and rollovers are particularly serious. You know, as we looked at the 123 deaths that you talked about, almost two-thirds of those actually come from rollover accidents. So they're particularly uh, serious. And what is the root cause of the persistence of these accidents? Well, as we looked into the data and, and looked at that 10-year period, we found that primarily human factors were the driver. And these are things like attentiveness of the driver, lapses in supervision, and overall lack of training, which are things that we uh, get into in some of the findings and recommendations within the report. It sounds like the vehicle driving then almost might be considered wrongly, but nevertheless considered by the leaders there to be ancillary to the situation that they're training the people in directly. That is to say, they need training in the operation of these vehicles specifically before they can be used for training for some situation. That's right. I mean, I think as we looked at the training process, you know, there's licensing, which is really basic. It's basic operations. But beyond that, for a driver to gain proficiency, it's based on the experiences and the opportunities they have within those units to actually drive the vehicles in various conditions. And so the amount of experience and the capabilities and the proficiency of those drivers, as we found, varied considerably. And to give you an example of sort of what we're talking about here, when you look at it, like a Bradley fighting vehicle, for example, it has a large gun on it, looks almost like a tank, and then it carries infantry soldiers. There's a gunner on board that vehicle that has to have a very regimented training process to go through certifications and qualifications in order to be able to fire that weapon and establish essentially those, those proficiencies. There's no such training regimen in place for the driver of those vehicles. So there's no performance-based set of steps or procedures or different sets of experience that drivers are required to go through in order to attain proficiency. And so as a result, any given driver within any vehicle or even within units or within the services, their skill level can vary, and that creates a safety concern. And I imagine that the terrain in which they do operate the training is by deliberation filled with ruts maybe and barriers to go over, and so it's easier to tip over a thing or otherwise crash it because you're not driving on a nice smooth banked track. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the operations of these vehicles do go through very rough terrain, environmental conditions, weather conditions. At night is another concern. So all these come to play. And so having that driver with those skill sets and that level of proficiency in order to be able to operate at the level at which it's needed to safely conduct those exercises is critical. And looking at the Army and the Marine Corps separately, is there a particular class or type of vehicle that is prevalent? causing most of the accidents? 
No, I think we found that it's pretty uh, consistent across vehicles for the issues. And that kind of gets back to some of the findings that we have within the units. And, and particularly, you know, one of the things we noticed was the safety practices that are put in place are really inconsistent. And a lot of that has to do with how those vehicle supervisors, those inline supervisors or vehicle commanders apply safety standards. And it varies, again, across the set of vehicles and units. And what we found missing really was a good set of practices that would be in place that should be consistently followed as well as a a consistent level of roles, responsibilities, and experience levels defined for those vehicle commanders. And so part of the recommendations that we're making is that they do a better job establishing consistent safety practices and the right level of command emphasis in order to make sure that those safety practices are followed. Because some of the things that we've noticed as we've gone through the work was there's a lot of mission pressures and time pressures on unit to complete the mission, to complete the training, and all those can compete with safety. So it's very important that there be a good, well-defined role for those commanders and that there be good procedures and practices put in place and followed in order to maintain the safety of the vehicles. We're speaking with Kerry Russell, Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And yeah, let's run through some of the other top-line recommendations then. Sure. Well, essentially, as I mentioned before, so we have recommendations aimed at trying to improve the safety practices at the unit level by better defining the roles and responsibilities of those vehicle commanders. We also have recommendations in place to improve the training program for drivers so that there's a more performance-based program with steps to achieve those proficiencies at the driver level. And then we also have some recommendations aimed at the ranges themselves in terms of how the the ranges identify and communicate hazards, for example, to the units and the drivers that are operating on those ranges, as well as a recommendation to create a forum for sharing lessons learned and best practices among ranges, which currently doesn't exist. There's several ranges out there that have a number of good practices in place, but they vary. And sharing that information and being able to, for one range, one base to learn from the experience of another is critical to improve the overall safety of training. And did the recommendations pretty much get a welcoming ear? Because I imagine the services can't be happy about the number of soldiers and Marines they're losing in this ongoing effort. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's a concern to the services as well. And they did receive a good reception. We got concurrences on all the recommendations and both the Army and the Marine Corps agreed to take steps to implement them. So we're, we're hopeful that some real change will be underway. Because for prosaic purposes of logistics and just keeping things operating, the military services also operate semi-trucks with trailers and that kind of thing, just regular transport trucks. And it sounds like they probably spend more time training people to operate those trucks for prosaic purposes than maybe they spend training people to use combat vehicles in combat yeah, situations. No, I think you're right. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, uh, as we look, the motor transport drivers, which are the, the drivers specifically that design trucks and transportation, they have a little bit more training within their schoolhouse and within their, their career, whereas drivers of combat vehicles, such as the Bradley Fighting Vehicle, uh, are infantry soldiers that are, that are also cross-trained on how to drive the vehicle. So there's, there's a little less training going on there for sure. Kerry Russell is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the GAO. Thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, 
and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's chief of legislative affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from sea to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Um, absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. 
you don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot, both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I would like to add one thing, if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, 
always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast1 to learn more and start your free trial.